EM Guidewire, hard-hitting emergency medicine from Carolina's Medical Center. This is Destiny Volk, PGY1. Wait, no, PGY2. <laughs> this is Sophia Durba, also PGY2. And we are excited to introduce you to two of our stellar new interns, Dr. Carrie Bissell and Dr. Fernanda Kalianis, who will be carrying on the Intern Nuggets podcast. So excited, in fact, that I think I'm getting palpitations. Thankfully, Drs. Kalianes and Bissell are going to teach us an approach to working up this broad chief complaint in their first episode of Intern Nuggets. Take it away, Drs. Kalianes and Bissell. Thank you, Dr. Dervan Folk, and welcome back to EM Guidewire's Intern Nuggets. I am Fernanda Kalianes, PGY1. We are now one month into intern year, and it has been exciting and at times overwhelming. So if you feel like that when you start, trust me, you are not alone. You are certainly not alone, Dr. Kellyanis. My name is Carrie Bissell, PGY1, and I am so honored to be carrying on the Intern Nuggets podcast. I remember being so anxious to order my first medication. What was the first thing you ordered, Dr. Kellyanis? Mine was lorazepam for alcohol withdrawal. The ED order set had one milligram automatically listed, but I was too scared to give too much, so I clicked on 0.5 milligrams instead. About five minutes later, my attending saw that and changed it to two milligrams, and told me, yeah, that's not going to do anything. Let's crank it up. I would encourage new interns to remember what their first official medication order is as an MD because it is actually a really great way to bond with classmates. I had the opposite happen to me. The first time I ordered a benzodiazepine after my patient had a seizure, the nurse looked at me and said, I'm going to put the patient on a monitor before giving that much. Thankfully, medicine is a team sport. Patients are the best teachers, and I feel that I would better remember these lessons now as they are tied to impactful patients. So, have any impactful patients that we can learn from today? That is such a great point. I agree, the information on pages of textbooks matter, but the patients solidify it all. I did have an interesting patient over the past few days. She was a 17-year-old female who arrived to the emergency department with the complaint of dun-dun-dun palpitations. On arrival, she was afebrile, tachycardic to 125, normal tensive, and satting 98% on room air. When talking to her, she disclosed that she began having palpitations when going onto various internet sites to investigate her symptoms. As she discovered many rare and lethal diagnoses that she could have, she was prompted to visit us in the ED. What did you think of first? The abyss of medical diagnoses on the internet is broad and can be quite terrifying. So I'd probably recommend she stop doing medical deep dives on the internet. But I know that this is a common practice, and what she encountered on the internet does not change her real risk for having a significant problem. So let's start fresh. With her chief complaint of palpitations and tachycardia, our differential is pretty broad still. Thinking about what could be lethal in this patient, I think of cardiac causes like a dysrhythmia or a pulmonary embolism causing her tachycardia. She could also have an infection, or it could be related to substance use. Let's get more history and try to narrow it down. Well, this is the first time she's experienced palpitations. They began three hours ago, are intermittent, and she denies chest pain. She has not had palpitations with previous anxiety episodes. Her only medical problem is anxiety, and states that she has been trying to see a counselor for this, but has been having insurance issues. She has been wanting to treat her anxiety by eating healthier and exercising more. She mentions she has lost about 8 pounds in the last couple of months, and I did a thorough review of system and everything else was negative. I find that cases like this can be really challenging. We have said that the differential for palpitations is vast, and therefore, I could justifiably order a million tests. But this is not a good idea either. Ideally, we use our thorough history and physical exam to find clues that can help us narrow our differential. 
So currently we know that while she has anxiety, she has never experienced these palpitations before and her heart rate is 125. I would like to explore her medical record to see if this presentation has been seen before or if she has other clues. But at first thought, I do not believe that we can attribute this solely to anxiety, especially with eight pounds of weight loss. Anxiety can definitely be a cause of palpitations, but we don't want to miss something else. Regardless, the important issues I need to investigate right now are whether she is having an arrhythmia. Also high on my list of important things to consider would be anemia, so perhaps asking questions about bleeding and looking for signs of pallor would help me here too. Clearly, with her being a 17-year-old female, I need to consider pregnancy and abnormal pregnancies. Pulmonary embolism is also an important consideration even without chest pain or shortness of breath. Do you know if she has a history of OCP use, smoking, or recent trauma? If not, I would consider her low risk, but with her tachycardia, she would not be perk negative. Lastly, could this be related to her thyroid? A physical exam may be helpful, but even without thyromegaly, I think a TSH and T4 would be reasonable. So to recap my initial orders, that would be an EKG, a urine pregnancy test, a CBC for her hemoglobin, and a thyroid panel. Did you find anything in the chart? Dr. Vissel, those are some fantastic thoughts. So she's on a progesterone-based OCP, smokes occasionally, no trauma, and a nice pregnancy or abnormal bleeding. I agree. It could be easy to just attribute her symptoms to anxiety, but her history did not really support that. Reviewing her chart also did not support anything attributing her palpitations to anxiety alone. In fact, she had no other doctor visits in the chart. So we did like you suggested and ordered her an EKG, UPT, and labs. And while the labs were pending, it was noticed that she seemed to be really anxious appearing only when providers were in the room. The nursing team also notified me that when medical staff was not in the room, she appeared calm without signs of restlessness. Her parents also mentioned that her anxiety and depression has gotten worse since she had last had a fallout with her sister a couple months back and has not started medications yet. Hmm, so she was hyperactive when talking to you? A lot of the data you have now fits with anxiety, and it sounds like that's what you were thinking too at this point. What did your initial labs show? Yes, I was thinking anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. But our job as good emergency physicians is to be thorough and not to jump to conclusions. All of these initial labs came back and showed an EKG and sinus tachycardia. CBC, BMP, D-dimer, and chest x-ray were within normal limits, and UPT was negative. Oh, well that's good. But wait a second, I think you're missing one of my labs. Don't hold out on me. What was the thyroid panel? Ah, yes. (laughs) Well... Those results take a little longer to come back from the lab, so I was just trying to make it feel a little real. Her TSH was less than 0.1, and she had a very high free T4. No wonder she feels this way. She has hyperthyroidism. Good job figuring that out. Thanks. So my first thought was, is this thyroid storm? So naturally, I calculated her Birch-Witorsky point scale on MD-Calc with a score of 30. Say that three times fast. Ah, yes, naturally. The Birch-Witorsky point scale. Great thought. Thyroid storm classically presents as a triad of tachycardia, hyperthermia, and altered mental status. From what you told me, she is tachycardic and mildly agitated, but normothermic. It is always a good idea to take advantage of scoring systems to support your decision-making when they are available. This particular score incorporates temperature, mental status, GI symptoms, or hepatic involvement, heart rate, signs of CHF or AFib, and a precipitating event. Sounds like your patient had an elevated score, which means you should probably initiate some treatment in the emergency department and put some thought into a safe disposition for this patient. Also, 
If she were febrile or nauseous, it would be important to treat those symptoms with antipyretics and antiemetics, and consider an infectious workup if you suspect infection as the precipitating event. With a score of 25 to 44, it suggests impending thyroid storm, and one should also consider ICU monitoring. Patients with thyroid storm can look stable but quickly deteriorate, so it is also important to speak with endocrinologists who have more experience with it and can help guide disposition. First thing for these patients is to start a beta blocker ASAP. I started my patients on propranolol 60 mg QID, followed by propylthyuracil 200 mg QID. You can also consider methimazole instead of PTU at 20 mg PO every 4 to 6 hours. However, PTU has the added benefit of decreasing T4 to T3 conversion and works faster than methimazole. Great. So management with a beta blocker inhibits adrenergic activation at both beta-1 and beta-2 receptors, and a thionamide will lower the synthesis of thyroid hormone. After these initial treatments and in conjunction with your endocrinologist, additional options include iodide, which will inhibit release of stored thyroid hormone. Available forms of iodide include SSKI, which stands for supersaturated potassium iodide, 5 drops every 6 hours, or Lugol solution 10 drops TID. Steroids can also help by limiting peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. The dosing of this would be hydrocortisone 100 mg IV Q8 hours. Yes, exactly. Endocrine kindly asks to get baseline LFTs since PTU can be hepatotoxic and they scheduled an appointment for follow-up the next day in clinic. Although we did not start SSKI, they provided a teaching point that SSKI should only be administered after thionamides to prevent the imminent increase in thyroid hormone synthesis. Good to know. I'm glad this patient has close follow-up planned. I know she also mentioned wanting mental health resources, so it's good to consider looping in social work so the patient can learn about additional resources available. Great case, Dr. Kellyanis. I think one of the most important teaching points here is to not assume or narrow on diagnoses too quickly. I have found that patients often come with diagnoses that are either self-given or given by a medical provider. While they are sometimes right, it's important that we take a good history, review what testing has already been done, and think through potential additional medical causes. Sounds like you did just that for this patient. Well, that's all we've got for you today. Thank you for joining us at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Please check out our other podcasts and imaging series. We'll be back for some more intern nuggets soon. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems he out. Dun dun dun, palpitations. I calculator heard Birch with Torsby point squeak. <laughs> Let's run it back. <laughs> so I was just trying to make it feel a little real. Yay. <laughs> three times. Yes. Three times. <laughs> yes.